0: Bienvenidos, marhaban, and welcome to the Never Never podcast, Exploring the Dresden Files series by Jim Butcher. I'm your host, Christine. I'll be releasing multi-chapter analysis episodes for each book, along with special bonus topic episodes, apparently on no particular schedule. Here we discuss the series' world building, overarching plot, groundwork, foreshadowing, character intros, as well as any meta aspects, mythology, callbacks to other books and theory. The Never Never podcast may include spoilers from all sources. The Dresden Files features mature themes, including sexuality and violence. Also, I'm terrible at watching my language, so the Never Never podcast is intended for mature audiences, despite having playful, if not childish, tendencies. I so enjoyed going through Stormfront and I loved the research I did for the mythology of Mab. You should have seen my face when I learned how to pronounce Queen Maeve. I was positively giddy to share it with all of you. And I am excited to move on. Episode 10, Out of Your Jurisdiction, recorded April 30th, 2021, covering Full Moon, Book Two, chapters one through four. In this episode, Harry makes a dangerous decision for someone else that he'll come to regret. Murphy doesn't like litter, and she drives too fast. There's a horrific murder and a pack of FBI agents, one of them particularly unhinged. Harry and Murphy try to put to bed the tension of the last few months. They discuss the case, and she orders a report on werewolves. They're being followed, but Dresden can't investigate that because he has a limited time to make with the magic. Plus, we talk about open honesty, communication, and trust, or the lack thereof. So, let's draw our circle step through the way to the never. Chapter One, Kim and the Circle. We begin our journey through a new case file, Full Moon, Book Two of the Dresden Files. Talking to the fandom, this is not everyone's favorite book. In fact, many say it's the worst book in the series. I confess I have said so. But the least of a pile of treasure is still a treasure. So let's see what gems we can find in here. As we did with Stormfront, book one, we will look at our first line for what important elements of the story or character information we could find. Quote, I never used to keep close track of the phases of the moon. Unquote. Which tells us, of course, he does now. It also tells us that these phases will not only be central to the plot, but this will also be the thematic focus of this book. The moon and its fullness, representing the panoply of werewolves Harry will both fight and befriend in this case file. Full Moon starts quietly, like Stormfront did. It's Harry in his second book having dinner at his second home, McAnally's. Harry's quote, sometime apprentice, unquote, Kim Delaney, whom we've never before met, is trying to get Harry to tell her what these darn symbols are for. Harry won't because the information could be dangerous. She assures him her interest is purely academic, like the bullshit line, I'm asking for a friend. He's not buying it, but Harry must sandwich, and as usual, he's broke as a joke. Mac steak sandwiches and warm ale ambrosia could tempt away the soul. Plus, Kim points out that she knows he's strapped for cash, which is a subtle jab at Harry's pride. Where are our pins? Ah, here they are. Put a pin in that. She'll buy for him either way. So, now he's got to give her something. Okay, fine, says Harry. The first two magic circles are normal enough. One for spirit, one for flesh. But the third, it's just rubbish. Doesn't mean anything. Can't do spirit and flesh. Nothing is spirit and flesh. Well, you know, except for high-level demons and such, and we're certainly not telling her about those. Kim smells bullshit. Oh, it's a bullshit. It's everywhere in this chapter. She cajoles Harry into revealing what a lousy liar he is. He falters. Look, that's dangerous stuff. You don't need to know because don't mess with it, that's why. Basically telling her it's out of her jurisdiction. Quote. Save it, I told her. You're sitting on a tiger cage, Kim. I thumped a finger on the paper for emphasis. And you wouldn't need it if you weren't planning on putting a tiger in there. Unquote. Ah, good. Giant pin. Come small favor, book 10, I'll have a lot to say about that tiger cage. Bonus points to anyone who can guess what it is. Kim insists that doing things, dangerous or no, is her business, which is bullshit again because she's asking him to teach her dangerous things without telling him why. Man, it really is everywhere in this scene. He crumples the triple circle diagram, tossing it on the ground and responds that it's his responsibility to help her make the right choice. This is true, but how is she supposed to do that when he won't tell her why it's the right choice? Makes no sense. I suppose it boils down to the fact that their mentor-student relationship is lacking the key ingredient in every relationship. Trust. The heart of trust is the willingness to be vulnerable, and is built using open, honest communication. There is something to keeping back advanced knowledge from a beginning student, but in this case, neither Harry nor Kim should have not said what they didn't say. Ultimately, he is the mentor, responsible for the trust not being built, and responsible for continuing the mentorship when that trust is absent. What I'm saying is, withholding from her was not in his jurisdiction. Harry tries to redirect, asking her how her fundraiser is going. And Kim complains how tired she is of fighting to save the planet from being poisoned and the animals from being exterminated when no one seems to care. Feeling frustrated and short-changed, Kim pays and leaves Harry with the words, quote, and thanks for nothing, unquote. It never occurs to him that she'd be doing anything except flirting with powers beyond her understanding. Ever think, Harry, that she wouldn't need a tiger cage if there weren't a tiger what needed caging? Or is it so unthinkable that a woman who believed herself to be in trouble wouldn't want to come to you openly for help? Maybe she just wanted a smidge of guidance from her sometime teacher, so she could then figure out and solve her problem herself. He teaches. Sometimes. Just not this time. And man will Harry pay for this in nights of restful sleep. Murphy shows up while Dresden is brooding about the argument, Picks up the litter, puts it in her pocket, no trash can in the immediate vicinity. Inconspicuously dropping this important detail is expertly done. Murphy picks up Chekhov's arcane drawing, sandwiched in between two lines of dialogue, masking its importance. It's even thematically hidden. Kim has been talking about her environmental activism, and here Murphy is cleaning up trash. I'm like, really well done, Jim. As good a time as any to address our small pin. While explaining Harry's money troubles and his usual dependence on CPD's SI contracts to pay the bills, Jim has Harry pine over Murphy. Even in someone else's company, someone attractive even, stomach growling, worried about money, guilty over not wanting to answer Kim's question despite her paying the check, Murphy's absence still plagues him. His complaining isn't about the money, really. It's, why hasn't she called? Then, when Murphy shows up, Harry, first thing, notices she cut her hair. Then he assesses the new do, describing it favorably, and says that it was, quote, very appealing with her blue eyes and upturned nose, Then, to describe her martial skills, Jim has Harry say, basically, that she's extremely small and cute for a full-grown badass. I don't care what happened in Battleground. Still his forever girl. Harry is a petulant jerk about her neglect, but when Murphy says killer, Harry's bullshit is forgotten, and they take Murphy's car to the scene. See? Up to our ankles in bullshit. Chapter 2. Murphy vs. the FBI On the way, Harry notices some things. First, Murphy is driving really fast. Too fast. Harry asks why, and Murphy half-answers by saying, quote, I want you out there before some other people show up. Unquote. What other people? Reporters? Quote. Whoever. Unquote. Right, whoever. Second, now that Harry is asking about her behavior and about the case, she's being shady about her responses. This pricks Harry's suspicion, but he is distracted by his next realization. Third, Harry notices that they have left her jurisdiction. Okay, you can't get mad at this one. It's factual and relevant. This worries him more than the other things, but then Murphy throws out that there have been murders. And Harry again goes, Squirrel! Fourth, Harry notices that the sign on the doors to the bar to which Murphy took him reads, The Varsity, a new location for a familiar setting. This series has a thing with reusing places. Whether recycling names in new locations or revisiting old locations under new management... More on this in future books. Quick note that is the second time this episode that we're looking forward to stories to come which will reference this book. Fans disagree about whether the series really gets going with Grave Peril, Summer Night, or Death Masks, books 3, 4, or 5, that it takes a while for the future of the series story to be seeded. That seems to discount many of the very important setups we get this early on, and even back in book 1. Harry reminds us of the aftermath with Marcone from the last book, that many think he's done a hit for Marcone. Musing so, Harry nearly steps in the enormous pool and sprays of blood that surround the lump of shredded cloth and flesh on the floor of the varsity. Last book, Harry takes in the details of the broken heart murders, but then vomits from the gore and the smell. There's something to be said here about desensitization— this time, Harry keeps it down, even though the body is so much worse. A striking tableau, this is not. This man is just chum. Then Harry thinks he recognizes the body. Oh, it's Spike, one of Marcone's bodyguards. I mean, they weren't friends by a long shot, but the familiarity makes the scene even more horrific. Harry scans the interior of the building. Shards of glass littered the floor in front of a broken window, indicating that someone broke it from the outside. There was a collapsed table next to the window, perhaps the point of entry. Some of the glass had blood on it. Could be the assailants, so Harry pockets a piece wrapped in a handkerchief. Then, off to the side, next to a pool of blood reflecting the full moon, he sees a dusty canine paw print, as big as six-foot-eight Harry's splayed fingers. A bloody full moon adjacent to an enormous wolf was here. That's not a thematically representative clue or anything. So, Harry starts guessing. The other murders happened similarly, didn't they? Last month, clustered around the full moon. And then this haunting moment. Quote, Harry, she said after a minute, are there such things as werewolves? She brushed a strand of hair back from her cheek, a small and oddly vulnerable gesture. She folded her arms over her stomach as though she were cold. I nodded. Yeah, not like you see in the movies, but yeah. Unquote. Then, in march a team of four FBI agents. Murphy complains, astonished Quote, How do these assholes get everywhere so fast? Unquote. We'll put a pin in that for a future episode and move on for now. My first thought upon reading this was that four seemed odd, given the Bureau's propensity for sending them out in pairs. But, I don't know, what do I know? They walk in, beginning to secure the scene, quote, in an almost military diamond formation, unquote. The leader, Agent Denton, is tall, athletic, 40s, black hair and gray eyes, this will no doubt prove relevant when we're trying to tell apart some wolves, And so begins the swinging of dicks. He immediately calls out Murphy's jurisdiction deficiency and starts insulting Harry's credibility. He calls one of his team members, Agent Ben, late 20s, already with a mane of graying hair, olive skin, green eyes, to escort the civilians from the scene. Ben moves dangerously. But Murphy does not care. She is not going anywhere. Murphy tries to claim she has permission from the local PD, but we find out later that she doesn't. And Denton seems to know this. Sensing the wind is not blowing for them, Harry is desperately trying to calm Murphy and separate her from Agent Ben so as to avoid the very thing that happens next. Ben tries to get Murphy in a hold, and even though she is fit and a competent fighter, Murphy is having none of it. And redirects the FBI agent into a wall. Then it all goes tits up, as Ben, in frustration at being shown up maybe, or just to eliminate a threat, draws and fires her weapon on Murphy. Harry dives and pushes Murphy to the floor, thoughtlessly risking his life and saving hers. Denton lunged between them, talking to Ben quietly so that Harry and Murphy couldn't hear. On reread, it suggested to me a low warning growl, like, like the alpha keeping the other greek letters in line, but that could be me just projecting what I already know about their recent lycanthropic activities. Harry calls Agent Ben a crazy bitch, and he is not wrong. That kind of action is beyond the pale. The other agents and some uniform cops run in to figure out what happened. Denton claims Ben's weapon misfired accidentally, and Murphy inexplicably backs up the story. So Denton sends the other two to escort Harry and Murphy out. There's a skinny ginger kid, Harris, who goes by Raj, and Wilson, a well-fed balding man who walked them to the parking lot. Harry WTFs at Murphy about Ben for a minute, but Murphy seems more upset about the attempted sucker punch wrestling hold than the bullet that barely missed her. Weirdly, Farther and farther behind them, Ben is just sitting outside the bar, head in hands, crying. And Denton, it seems, is comforting her. This feels incongruous with her projected confidence in the accidental discharge scene we just went over, but I suppose that even crazy bitches break down sometimes, especially after an adrenaline rush like that. Raj tries to defend Ben, saying she's been stressed, not sleeping, she lost someone... But that's not an excuse to use Harry's word, to ventilate someone. It's uncomfortably apropos of current events, and I am no expert on those, so we're not going to go there, but I wanted to acknowledge it before moving on. Wilson tells Raj to shut up and tells Harry and Murphy to scram. Earlier, Kim was asking for dangerous information while withholding the purpose of her needing it. Harry puts her in danger, keeping her ignorant when he refuses to answer withholding again. Here, Wilson checks Raj for oversharing, not wanting their business known by these potentially dangerous outsiders. They were all out of their jurisdiction. Nope, I'll never stop. You can't make me. Then we get a beautiful noir-style paragraph which sums it up nicely. I looked up through the clear night at the almost full moon werewolves jumping through windows at gangsters' lackeys in unfinished restaurants, a mangled corpse in the middle of a blood-drenched floor, berserk FBI field agents drawing guns and shooting to kill, a little kung fu, a little John Wayne, and a few casual threats. So far, I thought, my nerves jangling. Just one more night on the job." Unquote. Finally, we know that the FBI agents are using the wolf belts to change into Hex and Wolves, so let's not beat around the bush. We're given several subtle linguistic clues of their animalistic natures. From Agent Ben's mane of hair and wild temper, to the silently coordinated way they move as a team, to Denton lunging to put himself between Ben and Murphy, to their description as berserk, on reread it seems almost obvious that they are in some way bestial i'm saying i could have seen it on the first read but i certainly did not chapter three communication trust and the vicious circle harry is heavily shaken he's imagining the gruesome scene he can't stop seeing it smelling the blood remembering the congealing texture of it tasting bile but keeping it down like at the scene this type of reaction to a traumatic experience like Harry just had seems like the beginning stages of PTSD. Um, TSD, I guess. I wonder why Jim didn't mention Harry's shock at the broken heart murders. These were very similarly horrific, and though he is getting ever so slightly used to it, as he didn't vomit this time, they both haunt him during their respective stories. Explicitly connecting them now would not have been out of place. Amazingly, Harry begins to empathize with, but not excuse, Agent Ben. After all, she's seen a string of these maulings, and must be even more on edge than he is. I tend to disagree, as Ben does this for a living. Even if this is a -a once-in-a-blue-moon bloody mess, she should not have just snapped like that. Retrospectively, we know that she was acting to protect herself and her pack against being found out by Murphy and Dresden, and we know that had Agent Ben succeeded in killing Karen, there would have been no stopping Harry from getting to Ben, and no mercy when he did. It was a stupid move, any way you looked at it. She would have had to kill them both, and she could not have done it. Harry wants to scream. Here we see the seeds of Harry's self-treatment in Small Favor Book 10, when he has to desensitize himself to and normalize the memory of the Nagaloshi permanently seen with his sight, in order to function at all. Leaving this crime scene, he breathes and breathes again, slow and deep, and talks himself through his residual terror, assuring himself that he is not dead, that Murphy is okay, the body is behind him and Murphy breathed right alongside him as they walked to her car. They sit and talk, having a very similar conversation as the one had with Kim. Harry asks for details of the case, but Murphy won't at first, because Harry lied to her and kept information from her to try to keep her safe. They are not communicating, so they feel they can't trust each other, so they don't communicate. It's a vicious circle. The Trust Project at Northwestern University says that, quote, the four key components of trust are benevolence, integrity, competence, and predictability. How do people decide to trust another person? Unquote. It was a long article, but basically, benevolence allows us to leave their motives unquestioned. We can trust that they are kind. Integrity exists in an ethical person. They will do what they say they will do. And they won't lie. Competence to ensure they can actually do what they said they were going to do. Can we trust that their skill can complete the task? And predictability means we can reliably guess their next move. A person whose actions can be forecast takes away the uncertainty of the unknown. While Murphy still believes Dresden to be competent, by lying to her he compromised his integrity throwing into question both his benevolence and his predictability. She never thought he would hide the truth from her, so why is he doing it now? This is how friendships and marriages and partnerships break down. The only way for Harry to repair their trust or rebuild what can't be fixed is to act in a trustworthy way, take that leap and tell the truth, share and subsequently connect. This is how Murphy responds to the idea of Harry lying to protect her. Quote, I am not your daughter, Dresden, she said in a very soft, calm voice. I am not some porcelain doll on a shelf. I'm a police officer. I catch the bad guys and I put their asses away. And if it comes down to it, I take a bullet so that some poor housewife or CPA doesn't have to. Unquote. But according to Harry, and with all due respect for Murphy's ability to do that with mortal bad guys, she don't know shit about shit yet. One day she'll know more about the monsters and spillover creatures from the Never Never than perhaps any other vanilla human. But this is not that day. Regardless, she's still hurt and questions his friendship. He could have at least told her that there were things he couldn't tell her because it would put her in the path of creatures more powerful than she could deal with. But he gave her nothing at all just stonewalling and obvious lies after harry apologizes murphy offers an olive branch she'll give him another chance and let him in on the particulars of the investigation but only if he promises that he won't do it again no secrets not again she bullies him into agreeing and promising to be open this time under the duress of a finger hold isn't the way i'd like to choose to be open with someone not a good luck, Murph. We'll see how long it lasts. But she needs help. The bodies are piling up, she could get fired, and Harry could even go to jail. Chapter 4, The Case of the Lobo Killer. Dresden and Murphy bicker about their predicaments, indicating lingering conflict and perhaps a lingering mistrust between them, resulting from the slights and perceived slights they've perpetrated. You couldn't have told me sooner I could be facing charges. Why didn't you call me in a month ago when the killing started? Internal affairs is breathing down my neck. And then Harry shows off his skill with induction. Quote, I felt an abrupt twinge of guilt because I was on the scene. You had that warrant out for me and then had it rescinded. And then there were all those rumors about me and Marcone after the whole thing was over. Murphy's lips compressed, and she nodded. Yeah. And if you'd tried to tell me about it, it would have been like throwing gasoline on the fire. I rubbed at my forehead. And it would have gotten me looked at harder, too, by whoever was investigating Murphy. She had been protecting me. I hadn't even considered what those rumors Marcone had spread might do to anyone but myself. Way to go, Harry. One thing you're not is stupid, Dresden. Unquote. Ultimately, other than a suspicious warrant-no-warrant, no warrant, they have no actual evidence upon which to act. It's all just rumor and conjecture. But they're convinced she is dirty, and can still screw her over if she missteps. Harry guesses that's why she covered for Agent Ben, and he's right. But silver lining, Murphy thinks Denton, the FBI's pack leader, isn't convinced she's dirty, and so will deal more fairly with her. Murphy then realizes they're being followed and slows to call out the car behind them. They both begin paying it attention as they discuss the cases last month. A couple of gangbangers on the beach. Next night, an old woman near Washington Park. All of them torn apart. And forensics had nothing useful. So, Murphy called in the FBI for help. Their forensics found irregularities. The teeth marks, while close didn't match dogs or wolves, and the paw prints didn't either. Murphy wanted to believe it was someone trying to make it look like an animal attack. Huh. The following car was still back there. The next night, three homeless men in Burnham Park, quote, shredded, unquote. Finally, on day four, a businessman and his driver in a parking garage? One of these places is not like the others, And rather than being a rando, wrong place, wrong time, the businessman was in bed with Johnny Marcone on a Northwestern development project. And now Spike is dead, too, in Marcone's own bar, no less. These last two killings do not fit. Question from Murphy to you. Is it scarier to have a pack of wild animals, a bunch of psychos using wolf weapons, or actual werewolves on the loose? Which, indeed... No matter, she has to find the killers, or the thread by which her career is dangling will snap. Harry assures her he will do everything he can to help, including using a tracking spell on the bloody shard of glass in his pocket, and giving her a full write-up by Monday morning on werewolves. Karen leaves, and Harry watches as maybe the car that followed them on the highway is now leaving after Murphy, going the direction she is going, quote, the driver striking woman with shaggy dark brown hair peppered with gray did not turn to look at me as she went past Unquote. again we get the animalistic language in her description of having shaggy hair and i'll point out we've now had two women described to us without objectification no overly sexual evaluative portrayals for agent ben she is neutrally described and observed to have a hard muscled sensuality which I take to mean that she was buff, but still feminine. And now this new unnamed driver is described, using no evocative language at all. We'll meet Tara West next chapter, alongside the Alphas, and see if this trend keeps up. Harry questions whether she was the same driver as the one on the highway, and he does it for the sole purpose of making this terrible joke, Then again, my instincts have cried wolf before. Unquote. but um, ching Very clever. Harry decides Murphy can handle herself for now. Because he has very little time left before the blood on the glass dries and he can no longer make with the magic. So, he makes with the magic. And that's it for this episode. Before I sign off, my peeps, can I please share my joy with you? After the bonus episode, I got my first comment since episode one. I already responded to them, but I wanted to say thank you on air to at pbgdc6b0a3 for your kind and thoughtful words. This made my day, and I'm told it helps people to find the podcast, so thank you so much. I just hope I can continue to produce content worth listening to. Arigato. Dankeschön, and thank you all kindly for listening. I've been your host, Christine. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for providing the music for this episode, links below. Thank you to my supporters, without whom this project would not be possible. You know who you are. Thank you to my inspirations, those literary podcast giants on whose mighty shoulders I attempt to balance. And thanks to Jim Butcher for creating such a thrilling and insightful series, up about which I simply cannot shut. The Never Never Podcast is hosted on Podbean, and is also available on... Apple, Google, Amazon, Audible, Pandora, Alexa, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, Listen Notes, and more. Please follow, share, like, comment, subscribe. Send me your feedback. Email me at theneverneverpodcast at gmail.com. Or follow me on Twitter at NeverNeverPod. You have my consent to flirt with my algorithms and to spank all the buttons. Take care.